0: This is episode 7 of the Antarctic Cast. I'm very happy because in general, new podcasts, they last until the 7th episode. It's a very uh, good sign that we're in the direction of keeping something consistent and stable. And I have some brief but interesting topics to discuss on this episode. So let's get started. So the first topic that I would like to talk is about clothing. So this week I had my clothing appointment, which is basically... A lot of things that we have to use in Antarctica, they are very specific. And then it's not worth for the employees to buy um, clothes that you might probably never have to use again in life. So they provide um, a kit. And then there's one department in the company that have um, clothes in... All possible sizes and they provide you boots and socks and inner um, soles and overalls things for field work field things for uh, head glasses I think it's worth going a bit through the kit and then describing uh, just some telling some interesting stories so when you go to to the clothing appointment or kitting appointment, then they turn the AC really high. And, like, I don't know, as a Brazilian, I have the impression that AC is a thing that doesn't exist in Europe. Maybe in Portugal and Spain, I never lived there. But compared to Brazil, where, like, air conditioning is pretty much um, present everywhere, here is rather rare. And then... In this place specifically they do have a very strong ac system it's basically because you're gonna put all these polar clothes that are um rated for very negative temperatures together and you're gonna fry inside if they don't so then um the first things we put on are the inner layers and then you have something called a base layer is basically a so it, <coughs> the inner layer is also known as a second skin because really looks like it's a second skin super thin uh, fabric and then the second one it's uh, overall and it feels a bit it's not a fleece but actually i don't know um, a piece of cloth that is similar to that actually and i have never seen that before kitting appointment and after that then it comes the fleece layer then you have um, two possibilities that you can even overlay so you could have either um, a down jacket or a windproof waterproof and you can put in principle both then you have very thick socks and you have two types of boots there's the um, There are some boots that are smaller, but still they are not small, from a brand called Helle Hansen, and those boots, they are rated, I think, until minus 35 degrees, and then there are boots that are even thicker, and those are are really impressive. It's a pity in the sense that it's a podcast, because, I mean, if you have the time, just Google, they are called Baffin, from Baffin Island in Canada they're not made there but but the name comes because it's also a very cold place and those are normally used for the ski doo trips absolutely massive and different than most of the um, um, types of shoes or boots i ever uh, worn they have a different system of like keeping tight around your foot it feels like it's a jelly so you put your foot inside and it feels that all sides of the boot kind of compress against your foot and there are some laces but they are not that important and those are rated for minus 100 degrees celsius temperature which was a temperature that never occurred historically on earth so in principle if you have the buffins on your risk of um, frostbite it's very um, small but the thing is you also lose a, a lot of mobility, you wouldn't walk a long distance in in Baffin's, you would in the Heli Hansen. And often um, when I ask, okay, but for which temperature should I use this combination of clothes that I have now and, and now and now and the guy was always saying, well, if you have to put all of those on maybe you should be asking if you have to be on the field under those weather conditions. And it's really nice that first that they provide the kids second that I for sure would not know, I would not even know what I don't know about the pieces of the kit that I have to bring, and they also have um, very specialized um, goggles and sunglasses that are especially powerful for reflected um, light in the glacier, and also Antarctica is just below the ozone hole, which we're gonna discuss in the part two of this episode. So, a, a lot of sun protection is quite important there. Um, you have whiteouts when, when there's fog and there's a lot of light being reflected everywhere in the in the fog, in, in, in the ice and and the kids, um, they contemplate all possibilities. And, and they have experience, right? This company is doing that for <laughs> more than 50 years and then uh, sending hundreds of people per year so they actually know very well um, what you need, <laughs> a lot better than you. And they send a bit of too, too many things. And then it's your job to decide and understand a bit also the metabolism of your body and try to see which kind of things do I actually need to, to carry or use at any point. Also gloves, we have, I think, three types of gloves. There are some that are very thin and they are used for uh, fiddly work, so something very specialized. There are some that are um, more grippy, but also... Oh, sorry, less grippy, but also a bit thicker. And then there's a third pair that is... If you're gonna work with something that might um, get dirty, so trash or oil or anything that um, they are better for this kind of like dirt works as well as our um outdoor clothing we have also one uh like uh, overall in case of dirt work so to say and um so yeah i mean it, it's a lot of um, thinking to to know everything that you should have in a kit how you're gonna combine and how you're going which kind of work um, needs which kind of clothing. It's something that I'm yet to learn. A lot of the work that I will be doing, as I mentioned in the previous episode, is digging, and you get quite warm when you're active, and you get less warm when you're not doing a lot of uh, activity. So, this also influences a lot, um, both on your clothing and if your socks are gonna be wet or. So yeah, experience will tell. So this was about clothing, and the other part that I want to touch in this episode is weather. So this week we had uh, some talks about meteor- meteorol- meteorology. I'm terrible pronouncing this word. Let's um, from now on say met, so have a easier time in the rest of the episode. So the reason we get this kind of data it's well you important for many types of analysis but among other uh, things to know about safety and health for the people working in the station for flights it's something called M- M- metar because there are flights um departing for field um, missions and also flights not necessarily connected to what we are doing, but from other scientific stations that might need the weather forecast for this region when flying through. So, so there are those um, meteorological observations and also something called CNOP which is similar to the METAR, but a bit more detailed. And this is really to keep track of weather in the region. So, you can understand that weather data the longer you can keep a record, so if you're recording data, consistent and valuable data for 10 years is really nice, if you can do that for 100 years, it adds a lot more value, because then all, all the things in climatology or a lot of things in climatology, they can be compared with hundreds of thousands of years, up to like billions, which is basically the age of Earth and we don't have data for uh, these amounts of course so if you have a bigger series that we can maintain then we can extrapolate a bit better or see small variations in our pattern and try to um, infer knowing those also to do that there's something called radiosonde, which is basically a weather balloon And then there's a like, you launch weather balloons constantly with a device, and the device measures many things so, GPS, pressure, I think temperature. I I will not remember all the things that has been measured, but this kind of parameters in general. And um, so, you release a balloon, the balloon will drag this box, which is basically a plastic box with an antenna antenna will sh- shoot down the um, data until the balloon burst, which is about 35 um, kilometers. And um, well, the only downside of the balloon technique is that you most likely will not recover the box, so that contain the instruments, which have two problems. The first one is it is expensive so it costs about 200 or 250 pounds and the second and worse is that you create some kind of environmental impact but it's understood that um, the environmental impact which is quite reduced, is a really small box it has been a bit optimized for this kind of use in terms of impact Um, nonetheless it it has some costs but um, the benefits of having the predictions a bit outweigh the cost. So everything that is being done in BAS, there is some environmental supervision that kind of will analyze is this okay? How can this be mitigated in terms of impact? Or is this ethical? Um, what are the possible consequences? What are the things that we're not might not be thinking? So there is... Um, environmental evaluation so this is another thing that's been measured in terms of um, met in the station and then there is one that is really curious from Bas I think I mentioned in a previous episode so it's called um, this the Halley Research Station was responsible for the discovery of the ozone hole and the story behind is quite curious so um, at that point when they start measuring ozone in the station There were already satellites, American satellites, that were measuring ozone from the sky. But because they had some data points that didn't fit the model, they were um, excluded as outliers. And when the scientists um, in, in Bas, they made the measurements, they didn't consider those points as outliers. They just let it there and said, well, let's try to understand because maybe those points are relevant. And they were relevant indeed. So um, since, again, meteorological data is very important if you have long series, ozone still being measured in the, in the station, so we had a trading with a, a very curious machine called Dobson. Um, and it's something I think designed in, like, 1930. There was some degree of optimization over the years, but it's still a very analog, if you will, um, tool. Um, There are two down in Halley, one that is measuring automatically, one that is being operated manually. And the reason for that is that one is um, shooting the beam straight into the sky, and the other one have a periscope that can be manu- manually operated. So the one that shoots into like directly up. It's kind of nice because it's doing measurements more regularly, so you have more data points. But the other one have other advantages. So reliability and uh, human interference and possibility of measuring different parts of the sky as well. Uh, in a moment both are running in parallel and if the periscope part can be automated at some point then this will um, release a human operator from this task. So uh, meteorological tasks they involved uh, looking at the sky. So during this um, met week we went a lot outside to the garden or to the front of the building and then we tried to determine what's the percentage of the sky that is cloud covered. So there's a technique called Octus, which is basically dividing the sky in eight parts and trying to understand do we have four out of eight parts of the sky, the, the sky covered or one seventh of the sky one eighth of the sky is covered and there are two curious rules. So the first is, let's say you have a perfectly blue sky except a neglect- neglectable small cloud. Your sky wouldn't be zero, it would be one because of this cloud. And if you have this sky- a completely overcast but a, a spot which have blue sky um, somewhere you wouldn't also say it's eight out of eight, you'd say it's seven because of this small thing. And then we also look at the cloud types, try to determine which for me it's something in the moment completely abstract, but I think you get better over time, it's determine types of clouds is okay, if it's a cumulus, if it's stratus, if it's autostratus, or cumulus nimbus won't have in Antarctica, but it's in Cambridge, yes, or a Cirrus. And uh, the altitude in this part—it's really complicated. It's a matter of experience. At some point, you you understand. But I look and I'm like, I don't know if this cloud is at ten thousand feet, twenty thousand feet, ten meters from me. I I I really don't know. So it's it's another thing that it, it's part of the synop. And um, yeah, I I think there is some some time to to learn that. So, the way this run in the station is something like that um, there's kind of a calendar of when these observations have to be done, especially the observations that involve flight like so the matter the, in- the information which is relevant for the pilot whenever a flight is incoming or or, um, or outgoing somewhere then then you have to be there in in we don't have a, a tower. In Halley, we have in Rotterra, which is the other British station, but we send uh, via text or internet or telephone or radio um, a message to Rotara where the tower is, and uh, the control tower will determine if the pilot can land or not based on this uh, weather input. So then we have to, I think, hourly give an update on that, and if the weather changed by a reasonable amount, so if it was blue sky and suddenly fog comes in, then you have to do a special observation. Um, and, and the meteorological one, the one that's more like scientific data related, there are also some tables. And although we have a meteorologist in the station, He's responsible that this is being done correctly, but he's not responsible that this is being done only by him. He takes a lot of the shifts. The shifts often go from six to 10, which means you have to wake up at five every day and stay up until 10. And this would be really unfair to a person and also completely legal in terms of working hours. So all the scientific team takes part in this endeavor and helps uh, with uh, doing these observations. So this is something that is really cool, Um, I've been involved with in some degree clouds and recognizing weather because of paragliding course and I think this will be an amazing uh, opportunity, now that it's mandatory, Um, to, to, to just sit and understand the weather and this will be useful for mountaineering, for paragliding, for getting a raincoat whatever to dress better when you go outside so i'm pretty excited with this part and i'm also very excited with automation of this part because a lot of these things um been done in a given manner and this makes sense and it have to be consistent but i think a lot of those can be improved and automated and After the season, I'll try to to do my best to bring uh, suggestions on how to make this in a very consistent and reliable way. And just to put into perspective, when we go outside and try to determine um, the percentage of the sky that is cloud-covered, and we're in five people, you have five different opinions. And they agree in some degree, but mostly people think differently and would give a, a different answer. So it would be nice to have a consistent method and um, yeah, a way to validate that with, I don't know, image recognition, machine learning, taking still photos and looking later. I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to determine. But I think it would be there's a lot of room uh, there for improvement. Uh, and I'm really psyched about the postseason in this sense um, to, to see and understand what I had in the season and then just try to, to improve upon. So I think that's it. Just doing the usual summary of the episode. Um, there's a lot of pieces of clothes you receive in your kit to go south. Not all of them have you seen in your day-to-day life. The things are rated to extreme weather, up to minus 100 degrees in some cases. But it might be an overkill for some types of jobs and weathers. So it's uh, important to feel and understand your kit and know what to use in every situation and just use the experience of other people in the station that, uh, that dealt with that before. Uh, meteorological data is important for science, also for, um, for flights and for the life in the station. And there is a technique and many instruments do that, like weather balloons and measuring ozone with this Dobson instrument. There's a lot of room for improvement but it's for sure something that will be very helpful for personal life as well. So if you stayed until now, thank you so much for listening. Um, The trip is getting closer. I hope I can still bring interesting uh, content before I go. When I'm there, who knows how will be the possibility of doing uploads from there i'm not not sure but i hope i bring a lot of content back otherwise and then put some episodes after the trip so i'll put some relevant links in the description again thanks a lot for listening and see you in the next one